and uh, come with me please to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. If you can just find that in your Bible, please, that would be great. Fourth chapter of Hebrews, and just reading from verse 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. The priesthood of Christ is something that is much more important than most believers give it credit for. Christ's high priestly role is of great relevance and of importance to every single believer today. Now, in the Old Testament, as you probably know, there were three great offices, prophet, priest, and king. And the find that the priest, as far as Israel was concerned, for centuries was the intermediary between them and God. And even though uh, an Israelite could come and bring an offering unto God, but the priest had to officiate, the priest was the one who had to offer up the offering on his behalf unto God. That was his role. And so all of Israel was very well acquainted with the priestly role, and particularly the role of the high priest. And then, of course, the king, uh, his duties were civil. All things that were civil to do with the nation, then that rested at his door. And then, of course, the prophet. And uh, the prophet, of course, ministry was quite unique as well uh, because the prophet was the one uh, who would speak on behalf of God. The priest was the one who would speak to God on behalf of people. The prophet was the one who would speak to people on behalf of God. The priest was the one who would talk to God about the people, but the prophet was the one who would talk to people about God. And so there were two very distinct roles. And uh, so that was, that was the three offices in the Old Testament. Now, as far as the kings were concerned, they were not allowed under any circumstances to intrude into the priestly role. King Saul in 1 Samuel 13 tried to do that, and for that and other things, uh, he lost his kingship, lost his kingdom. We find that King Uzziah, uh, how that he himself tried to intrude into that priestly role, and he was smitten with leprosy. And then the sons of Korah and those who sided with them against Moses tried to also enter into a priestly role, and uh, they were killed for that. And so God made great distinctions between all these uh, roles. And then what we find is that the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he uniquely fulfills all of these roles. Whenever he was on earth, he fulfilled the role, as it were, of a prophet. 
He spoke on behalf of God. And he demonstrated the power and the glory of God with signs and wonders and miracles everywhere he went. We know that when he returns again, he's going to return as the conquering king of kings and lord of all lords. But right now, his chief role is of the high priestly role, where he sits at the right hand of the Father, where he ever lives to make intercession for us. And so that is his chief role today. Now he has other roles. He is the mediator between God and man, between a holy God and sinful man. He is the only mediator. The Bible also says he is our advocate in heaven. We have an advocate on earth, the Holy Spirit, who lives within us, but we have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so he is, and those are more legal terms. If you go to a court of law, and you're standing in the dock, you better have good counsel. You better have somebody with you who can plead your cause, who can be your advocate. And so Christ himself fulfills all of these roles. But the one that we want to focus on this morning specifically is this chief one, which is the role of being our high priest. Now, this vital, unique ministry of Christ that he performs daily, continuously, is of the utmost importance for you and I today. And what I want this morning is for you to begin again to grasp the importance of this particular role that Christ fulfills. This is what he will be doing until he returns to this earth. He's been doing it for 2,000 years plus and will continue every single day until he returns. So why is this role, this truth so important for us to grasp? Why is Jesus so uniquely suited for this role? Why is the writer to the Hebrews, for example, stressing this particular ministry of Christ? In fact, this is the very heart of the whole book of Hebrews. This is really what he's driving at. Why is he doing that? In fact, he takes several chapters to flesh out this role, which we can't do this morning. But we just want to highlight uh, the main part of it. Now, firstly, he's writing to the Hebrew Christians. These were second-generation Christians. And he's writing to them because they're coming under increasing pressure and persecution as Jewish Christians. Up to this point, they had been let off relatively scot-free, but now the heat is being turned up. The pressure is coming on. And by the way, unless you have lived in some distant planet, you'll know that Christians today, the heat is being turned up in the Western world. We're coming under increasing pressure to be able to stand for the truths of the Word of God. And that pressure will increase greatly. And in fact, we need to get a grasp of the truth of the Word of God and get a hold of Christ like never before because when the heat comes on and the pressure comes on, if we do not have a true grasp and hold of Christ and the truth of His Word, we're not going to make it. We'll fall away. And this is what the problem was with the Hebrew Christians. We're beginning to come under tremendous pressure. Now, it wasn't as bad as the first generation believers in fact, the writer says that they had not yet resisted unto blood in Hebrews 12 and 4. 
hadn't quite got that far yet. However, he does say that they were ridiculed and reproached, Hebrews 13, 13. Some had stopped even coming to church altogether, Hebrews 10, 25. And he says, forsake not the assembling ourselves together as the manner of some is. So some had drifted away from church. Others were in danger of, of losing and forgetting the faith that their fathers had taught them. They were letting it slip away. Some of them were being lured and attracted by false teachers that had come into the church. And also they were not growing spiritually. Hebrews 5, the writer gently rebukes them. He said, hey, listen, you should be, on the, be beyond the ABC stuff by now. You should need to be off the milk and onto the meat of the word. And he says, you're having to be taught all over again. He says, what's happening? You're, you're, you're spiritually low. You know, you need to take spiritual inventory sometimes and say, well, where am I spiritually before God? So all this resulted, of course, in the danger of them going back to the old ways of Judaism. They were supposed to be walking by faith, not by sight. But they were finding that increasingly difficult. Why? Well, the temple still stood. They were very familiar with the, the rites and the ceremony that went on in the temple day and daily. They understood and they knew all about the priestly roles, how to bring a sacrifice, the priest to offer it for them. They knew all of these things. They, they could see the vestments and the robes that the priests wore, the magnificence of the temple and all the rites and the rituals and the rigmarole that they went through for years, grew up with. And suddenly all that familiar stuff became attractive because it was concrete, it was visible. They could touch it, they could feel it, they could handle it, they could see it. But the Word says we're to walk by faith, not by sight. And that's okay in the good times. When everything's going well, it's easy to believe then. But when, when it seems like you're under pressure and you're stressed and strained and it's getting difficult to live this Christian life, there's a danger that's got harder to walk by faith and not by sight. And their, da their, their danger was that they were going to go back into that old system it was now over. It was a new covenant, a new testament. A new way had been opened up for them. A better way. Uh, I mean, 12 or 13 or 14 times the word better is used in the book of Hebrews. Uh, you know, Christ was better than, greater than. The priesthood and, and the temple and Moses and Abraham and all the patriarchs. Christ fulfilled all of those roles and fulfilled all of those old types. And it's a new day, it's a new dawn. Uh, and they've been walking in this for a while when it was easy. Now it's getting tough. And there's a danger that they slide back from once they came. So the writer here reminds them of the failure and the weaknesses of the Old Testament system and the glory and the greatness of Christ in the New Testament way. Somehow they had lost track of this and they were in danger of losing everything and going back into the old ways.
Now, one of the struggles they had was Christ's ministry. He wasn't on earth. He had long since ascended to the Father. I mean, this is some considerable time after Christ was on the earth. And one of their difficulties, and the writer recognized that, was this business of walking by faith, not seeing Christ, having never met him. And those who had walked till him are long since dead and gone. So now they're going to have to stand on their own two spiritual feet, as it were. Now they're going to have to believe for themselves. Now they're going to have to trust the Lord, even though they can't see him. And, and increasingly they couldn't feel him because they were coming under much stress and pressure and attack. And it seemed like they were on their own. And he was in heaven, but not relating to them on earth. Do you ever feel like that in your troubles? Do you ever feel like God is somehow up there and we're here and he doesn't know what we're going through and he has no understanding of my need and my problem and if he did, it doesn't seem like he cares. And You know, and you get into that kind of mode of going on and the devil comes in and he sees that and he pressurizes you and he tells you, yeah, you're right, you know, and what does God care? And, you know, you're on your own and sure, you know, is faith real? You know, is this religion stuff, is it genuine? And, and before you know it, you're just giving up and drifting away. And so they had a problem. And one of the things the writer is trying to address here is the reality of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for them, knowing exactly what they're going through. Touched, the AV says, with the very feelings of our infirmities, with our weaknesses, body, mind, and spirit. He knows it all. So he's trying to get that across to them. But the difficulty is, you see, they're thinking, but, because they knew Judaism inside out, and they're thinking, but how could Jesus be not a, even a high priest? How could he even be a priest? To be the high priest, for instance, you, you had to be of the tribe of Levi, and you had to be related. You had to get your descendancy right back to Aaron, the first high priest. So you had to be of that lineage, you had to be of that tribe, and Christ was of neither. He was of the tribe of Judah. <laughs> and he was of the lineage of David. So that, this was a difficulty in their mind. Here was the New Testament church having to believe that Christ was the great high priest, but here were these Jewish Christians trying to think, well, how can that be? He's not even of the right tribe. He's not even of the right descendancy. How could that possibly be? You say, well, David, I, I'm not Jewish and, and I don't really know the rites and the rituals of the Old Testament. Anyway, that's past now and what I need to know about that for? Well, you, you need to know. You need to know why Jesus Christ is our great high priest. You need to know why he's qualified to be that. You need to know what he's doing exactly what he's doing right now for us. So bear with me a little bit. This is in the Bible. It's in the New Testament. It's for us, isn't it? You know, I don't know you, but if you're trying to read through your Bible, oftentimes you come to certain parts of it and say, well, that's hankering back to those, that old system and I don't understand that. But it's all there for us to understand that we get a greater, greater picture of Christ and his ministry today. And so, this has got 
a lot to do with us. The fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And if we do not understand this, we will miss entirely a, a wonderful and tremendous confidence that this will give to us and strength that will come from him to us. And so to help them understand this, then the writer introduces them to an Old Testament priest way before the law, way before Moses in the days of Abraham called Melchizedek. Melchizedek's only mentioned two places in the Old Testament. In Genesis 13 and in Psalm 110 verse 4. And this Melchizedek is a mysterious kind of a person. Because, well, let me just read in Hebrews chapter 7 where it mentions here about Melchizedek. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, or a tithe, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. And in the strange thing, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, let me just unpack that a little bit for you. It's just not as mysterious as maybe as it first seems. This priest-king, which is unusual in itself, because we just said the king can't be a priest, so that marks him out as different. Remember, this is all before the law and so forth. This particular king here, this king-priest, it says, without father, without mother, without genealogy, have another beginning of days or end of life. Now, it doesn't mean that he was born supernaturally and died supernaturally. He came from heaven back to heaven. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that his genealogy was not recorded, deliberately not recorded. So we don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. We don't know his ancestry. Now, we do know that about Christ, but it's showing you here that it deliberately didn't record his genealogy so that we wouldn't know when he died it seemed to be he came from nowhere. seemed to be he lasted forever. It gives that impression. So he became a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's aiming at. He became a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who lives forever in the power of an endless life, the Bible says. So that's what it's simply saying. Now, he's writing to them and he's telling them about this Melchizedek, this king-priest, and he's telling them that is like Christ himself who has lived forever, even though we know his genealogy, we know where he came from, we know when he died and so forth, but he's living forever. And he is a king and he is a priest. So he's saying there's a precedent for this. That's what he's saying to them. There's a precedent set for this and that's the precedent Melchizedek. So look beyond the Old Testament priesthood that you know and look beyond that and further back to that and you'll find Melchizedek who became a type of Christ who was to come. And so he's getting them to understand the fact that Christ is our great high priest. In Hebrews 4, 4, 
16, it also says something about this here. It says, Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. The most that the high priest in Israel could do would be passed through that inner veil from the holy place to the most holy place. And he was the only one who could do that. And he could only do it one day a year on the great day of atonement where he had taken the blood of the sacrifice to sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant upon the mercy seat. He's the only one who could do it. So only once a year, only one man could pass through that veil. But Christ passed through the heavens to be seated at the right hand of the Father wherever he lives to make intercession for us. It says he passed through the heavens. The Apostle Paul speaks of three heavens, doesn't he? He says, I was caught up into the third heaven. The first heaven is the atmosphere where all things live and breathe. The second heaven is the planetary heavens, the starry place, the vaults of heaven, where the stars and the planets are. But beyond that is the third heaven where the very throne of God is, where heaven itself is. And Jesus passed through the heavens, passed all those principalities of the powers of the air, and right into the very throne room of God to sit at the right hand of the Father to be our great high priest. Listen, no priest, not even the high priest, could call himself the great high priest in the Old Testament, but Jesus is the great high priest. So that is the fact of it. But not only that, but his priesthood is forever. Seven times in chapter 7. Seven times alone in that one chapter, it talks about Christ's priesthood being continuous, continually, forever, forever. Seven times just to make absolutely sure that we understand and we know that he's still alive today and he's still carrying out his high priestly functions on our behalf even to this very day. In chapter 7, towards the end of it there, if I can just read a couple of verses. Verse 20. And insomuch as he was not made a priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn, will not relent, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so much more Jesus has become a surety or a guarantee of a better covenant. Also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost to come who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so Christ today, his priesthood is not just a fact, it is forever. There is never a moment on any day when he does not sit in that throne at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you today. You know, if that thought ever strikes your heart, I tell you, it takes a lot of stress and strain and worry and concern and anxiety away. 
Because you know you've got someone in heaven who's praying for you, who's interceding for you. But also his priesthood is faultless. You see, the high priest in the Old Testament, before he could ever go in and offer up the blood of the Lamb into the innermost sanctuary, the holiest of holies, upon the mercy seat, before he could do that, he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. Before he could offer the, for the sins of the nation, he had to offer a sacrifice for his own personal sins. But Jesus was sinless, spotless, undefiled, separate from sinners. There was no sin in him. He says, the prince of this world comes and he has nothing in me. No man could ever say that. says there we read in our opening text, but he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. There is something inherently attractive to us as humans about sin. We gravitate towards it very easily. We fall prey to it very quickly. There's something within our fallen nature is drawn to sin. But it's the opposite for Christ. Sin repels Christ. His purity, His holiness, His righteousness, everything in Him recoils from it. He's repelled by it. He's aghast by it. He hates it with a passion. And that is why His temptations... We're greater than ours because he was so pure and so holy. Can you imagine when he was on that cross and the sin of the world was dumped upon his shoulders? Can you imagine the horror of that? All of his life he was repelled by it, aghast by it, appalled by it, and it was put on him. Our sin was put on him. So he would pay the penalty for us. You know, the very sin that was used in the very fall of man is the same sin that was used against Christ. It's the same sin that's used against us. Apostle John, 1 John 2.16, he talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That encapsulate, that sums up all of our temptations to sin. It's all wrapped up in those three areas. You remember how when Satan came to tempt Eve in the garden? Remember how she saw that the fruit was good for food, the lust of the flesh? that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. Remember when Jesus in the wilderness was being tempted those 40 days by Satan? You remember how immediately after his fast was ended, what was the first thing the enemy came and says, turn these stones into bread? The lust of the flesh. 
Then he took him up into a great mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He saw them, the lust of the eyes. Then he took him up into the pinnacle of the temple and said, throw yourself down, the angel will catch you. What an opportunity to show yourself to the nation as a great miracle, supernatural man. The pride of life. And those are the things that tempt us too. Those were not only the temptations of Christ. Of course, he was tempted all of his life, not just in the wilderness. The Bible says that Satan departed for a season, but he came back again and again and again and again. But it was always, always, always going to be involved in one of those three things. Whenever you unravel it all, that's the root of it. And so he knew what temptation was. He knew what tests and trials were. He knew what rejection was. He got lots of rejection. We hate rejection, don't we? We hate to be rejected. That's why divorce is such a painful thing for people to go through because it's the feeling of rejection. We hate it. Jesus' own family, his brothers and sisters, did not believe in him until the resurrection. 33 years he grew up with them, didn't believe him. Can you imagine living in that? So many, many times he was tested, he was tried, he was tempted. He knew all the feelings and all the hurts and the pains that we go through. He's been there, he's done all of that. It's faultless. Not only is he priesthood of fact and not only is it forever and not only is it faultless, but thank God it is with feeling. He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. See, whenever the writer said that he has passed through the heavens, it says Jesus, the Son of God. Getting back to what originally thought, he's in the heavens, we're on earth. And in our minds, oftentimes in the heat and the pressure of difficulties and problems, we can, that distance becomes very, very great. But this is why it says, he has passed through the heavens, Jesus, speaking of his humanity, the Son of God, speaking of his divinity, so even though he's in the heavens as the Son of God, but he's Jesus the Son of God, he still has that human body. Whenever he went back to the glory, he did not divest himself of his humanity. He kept that. That makes him unique in all of heaven. There is no other being in heaven like Christ. He so wanted to identify with you and with me and to make us feel that we would never be apart, that we would never be separate even though geographically heaven separates us, but he's still in that human body. He still feels what we feel. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmity. He's felt it all. He's been through it all. So he wants to encourage us to let us know that he's not without feeling. Now we often say, don't we? 
And we warn people that you meet somebody who's gone through a terrible tragedy and people, we know why we say it, but sometimes we foolish to say, I know how you feel. No, you don't know how I feel at all. You have no idea how I feel. You've never been through what I've been through. You have no idea how I feel. Now, we, we, we don't mean anything by that, but oftentimes the person we say that to is thinking, hmm, you have no idea. But Christ has the idea. He's been through He's been tempted body, mind, and spirit. He's been tempted every way. He's been tested every way. So he does know how we feel. So it's more than just sympathy, it's empathy. If somebody comes alongside you and they say, I know how you feel because I've been through that. I carry the scars of that. Then you'll listen to that person because they know how you feel. Immediately there's a bond there, isn't there? And this is what the writer is trying to say. There's a bond between us and Christ. He's walked this earth. He's been through this. And even though he's in heaven at the right hand of the Father, he still has that body with the scars on it. He carries the scars. So he feels for us. In Hebrews 2, 17 and 18, it says, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a faithful and merciful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Now, it's one thing to say, I sympathize with you. It's another thing to say, I can help you. Because sometimes even though we have been through something the same as somebody else we're talking to and we sympathize with them, we empathize with them, but we can't help them. But he can. That's the difference. He can. Peter says, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. It's not just saying, well, I understand how you feel, but I'm sorry there's nothing I can do. No, no, no. It's more than that. For in that himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a faithful and merciful high priest in all things pertaining to God. There's all kinds of reasons why Jesus had to come to this earth and live and die as a man. You know, people say, well, could God not just not forgiven everybody without Jesus having to come and die? Well, he, he, no, he had to come and die. He had to shed his blood. He had to go through all of that for us. So he could sit at the right hand of the Father today and intercede for you and intercede for me. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Glory to God. So 
So let me read it to you again. We're going to wind up in a moment. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You see the danger was they were going to let it all go. What they believed in the good times, they were going to let go in the bad times. And that's a temptation that all of us face. Listen, we can come to church and we can shout and we can praise God and we can dance, we can clap our hands, we can do everything. Everything's wonderful. There's money in the bank. We're in good health and family's wonderful. Everything's grown great. It's wonderful. But then things start to go wrong. And the head drips and the shoulders drip. We start to miss a meeting. Prayer meeting's not as attractive as it used to be. Sunday morning, I don't know if I want to go today. I'm just tired, you know. I just think I'll lie in bed today. You know what's happened? Spiritually, we're run down. We're just letting stuff go. Things that we believe passionately in the good times, we're letting go in the bad times. And this is what the writer is warning of their danger. Don't do that, he said. Do not do that. Hold fast the confession of your faith. Hold it fast. Why? Because this life is trying to take it from you. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil all trying to take that belief and that faith and that trust you have in the Lord, trying to wrest it from you. Hold fast. It's a battle. It's a fight sometimes. It doesn't come automatically. Got to hold fast. For we have not a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but it was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Come with confidence, knowing that there's one sitting there who loves us, who's praying for us, who bled and died for us, who went through this life for us. So we can come with confidence, boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Satan will try everything he can on his part to stop you going to that throne of grace whenever you've got a need. Do you know how he does that? He reminds you of all your weaknesses. You say, look at you. Look at the shape you're in. What kind of Christian are you? Where's your faith? You're hopeless. Sure, you couldn't believe for anything. That's the way he talks to you. Reminding of all of your weaknesses, all of your faults, all of your feelings to try to prevent you coming before the very throne of grace. That's why it's called a throne of grace because we need the grace of God, don't we? <coughs> to find that help in time of need, it says. And this is why the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 1 and 12, For I know in whom I have believed, and am persuaded, fully persuaded, that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Are you fully persuaded? Have you total confidence in the one who sits at the right hand of the Father today? I'm not asking about confidence in you but confidence in Him. <laughs> look at all your weaknesses and look at all your failures. You're not even want to come to that throne of grace. Let us hold fast our confession. Don't give up in the day of need. I don't know who wrote this, but somebody said, 
where high the heavenly temple stands, the house of God not made with hands, a great high priest or nature wears, the guardian of mankind appears. He who for men their surety stood and poured on earth his precious blood, pursues in heavens his mighty plan, the Savior and the friend of man. Though now ascended up on high, he bends o'er earth a brother's eye, partaker of the human name. He knows the frailty of our frame. Our fellow sufferer yet retains a fellow feeling of our pains and still remembers in the skies his tears, his agonies, and his cries. Hmm. That's good, isn't it? I like that line. A fellow sufferer yet retains a fellow feeling in our pains and still remembers in the skies his tears, his agonies, his cries. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, sitting at the right hand of the Father today. Won't you just, could you just stand with us? I know communion is coming in a moment, but could you just stand with us? Because we're just going to pray. Because I'm very conscious that there's times when we're under pressure and the need is great. The temptation strong. And the feeling to go back or to throttle back or to just kind of let go of things that we know is true, that, that feeling sometimes is overwhelming. But I want you to think these moments of the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. The one who's still got the nail prints in his hands. That one who is touched. What a beautiful word, touched with the feelings of our infirmities. The one who wept at the grave of Lazarus. The one who wept over Jerusalem. He's touched by your feelings. The Bible says in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, that God puts our tears in his bottle. Tears were precious. And those Old Testament characters, they put them in little bottles as reminders of that tough time they went through where God met them and blessed them and met their need. And right now as you stand in the presence of the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father, I want you to say in your heart today, Lord, I give this to you. Lord, I just feel overwhelmed at times with the pressure and the stresses of this. But Lord, I know today that you care for me. So I'm going to cast my care upon you. I'm going to give it over. I'm going to lay it at your feet. And I'm going to say, Lord, you are my great high priest. You're the one who intercedes for me in heaven. You're the one who knows every hurt, every pain, every frustration, every fear, every doubt, 
Every moment of my day, you see and you know and you understand, Lord, I come to you today and I hand it over to you and I say, Lord, just touch my life. Lord, help me to see afresh with my spiritual eyes. Help me to see that you're a good God, that you care for me, that you love me with an ever-dying love. Help me to see, Lord, that you're seated at that throne of grace and mercy. And Lord, you're dispensing it to my life and heart right now. You're coming, Lord, with your mercy and your touch in my heart and my spirit. And I thank you, Lord, for your grace and for your forgiveness. I thank you, Lord, for your health and your strength. Lord, because you're touched not only with my spiritual feelings, my emotional feelings, but my physical feelings. Lord, the weaknesses that are in my body, Lord, I thank you that you're touching them. And Lord, that you're going to bring health and healing and cure. And Lord, that you're going to bring health and healing to my emotions. Lord, they're battered and they're bashed. And Lord, you're going to bring health and healing to my mind. Lord, it's racing with worry and anxiety and fear. Lord, I thank you today that you are the one, Lord, who can do this because you're the God of grace and mercy. And so, Lord, we bless you today. We thank you that you are the high king of heaven and that you're the high priest of heaven and that you are the advocate in heaven. You are the mediator in heaven. Lord, your ministry is continuing to this day. Lord, you have not stopped when you left this earth, but Lord, your ministry is continuing even as we speak at this moment. Lord, you're praying for us. Lord, what a wonderful thought today that the Son of God is praying for us today. Thank you, Lord, for this. Bless you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you're the great high priest. In the mighty name of Jesus, we give you thanks and we honor you today. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Bless the Lord.